Hi there and welcome to another Osler podcast. My name is Todd Fraser. The concept of ventilation-induced lung injury is well known. Some of the strategies used to avoid such damage may ultimately lead to hypoventilation, resulting in CO2 accumulation. This can, of course, lead to an exacerbation of acidosis and its attendant complications. Could extracorporeal removal of CO2, or ECOR, allow protective ventilation strategies to be used more broadly? Kieran Shekhar is an intensivist and researcher from the Prince Charles Hospital in Brisbane, Australia, and he joins me on the podcast today to discuss the role of ECOR in respiratory failure. This podcast is proudly sponsored by Baxter Healthcare, and we're grateful to them for their support in making this podcast available. Kieran, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Todd. Good to talk to you. Kieran, can we first start just by talking about what ECOR is and how it differs from its better known cousin, ECMO? Thank you, Todd. Um, look, ECOR essentially is removing carbon dioxide extracorporeally. Uh, historically, conventionally, we put people on some form of ventilation support or people self-ventilate to, to remove carbon dioxide from the system, uh, whereas extracorporeal uh, carbon dioxide removal allows us to directly remove substantial amounts of carbon dioxide from the blood. By definition, we sort of expect to remove at least more than 20% of total carbon dioxide production to qualify as a uh, extracorporeal carbon dioxide removal in technical terms. And, uh, and clearly it differs significantly from what we call extracorporeal membrane oxygenation, where by definition, we are able to provide additional oxygenation support uh, by virtue of using uh, much higher blood flows, you know, in the order of four to seven liters or more, uh, as compared to uh, a extracorporeal carbon dioxide removal, which many devices tend to achieve with much lower blood flows. Kieran, can you describe, for those of us who aren't overly familiar with the concept of ECOR, can you describe what the circuit is, how it works? Okay, so it's fairly basic, uh, Todd, you know, uh, most of the CO2 removal these days is veno venous, and there was a time we had pump-less devices where we just uh, borrowed blood from the arterial uh, limb and then ran past the membrane, which has got very low resistance, and then returned. So naturally, it was dependent on patient's hemodynamics. We've done that with dialysis too, but now most of the most of the devices have active mechanism. They have pumps, and they usually veno venous, and there are both the roller pumps. You know, generally when you do low, very low flows, it's usually a roller pump. Roller pumps are much easier, very low flows. Uh, and when you go on higher flows, the centrifugal pumps are more efficient. So you, you find both varieties. And generally with ECO, the blood flows are roughly between 200 mils to liter, liter and a half. That's the kind of the range and the surface area is anywhere from 0.3 to you know 1.4 meter square kind of surface area. And uh, it just involves, we can access the venous system either through one dual lumen cannula or two separate single cannulae. Um, there are recent benefits of doing either, like if you're using one cannula with dual lumens, there's always a risk of recirculation, especially when you crank up the flows. Uh, equally, if you're having two single cannulas, that means you're accessing two vessels and more chance for more invasive, more chance for complications. Uh, but by and large, 
venous cannulation should be relatively safe. And so essentially when you got, once you've got access, you then run it through a pump yeah, and then there's a membrane. Uh, it's, it, those membrane lungs are quite different uh, to the typical ECMO membranes, uh, ECMO oxygenators. They try to have lower resistance. Once again, the technology is usual hollow fiber, you've got fresh gas flows, uh, CO2 by nature um, diffuses from higher concentration to the fresh gas that has not much carbon dioxide in it. So naturally that means the more CO2 you have in your system, the more efficient the membrane is in removing it because if there's a lot of CO2 in the blood, it's much easier to remove CO2 from the blood as a person do. So, uh, to minimize complication, clotting complications, etc., in the membrane, then that means we need to maintain anticoagulation. Especially the low flow devices need a much higher anticoagulation. Generally, with venous cannulation, if it's done properly, you you can safely anticoagulate people unless they have other contraindications. From a technical perspective, ECMO is regarded as one of the most uh, pointy ends of intensive care practice. Is ECOR something that could be more broadly implemented across the spectrum of intensive care units? Yes, you know, look, uh, the short answer is yes. Uh, the long answer is that we have a promising technology. It's, it's not entirely a brand new technology and that it's been described more than four decades ago. But when people realize that mechanical ventilation has got a lot of uh, side effects, especially the iatrogenic lung injury aspect, so there was always interest in this technology. And with time, as we all realized, respiratory failure and ARDS is not a very homogeneous group of patients. And, and we do know that these are all tools in our toolbox to treat respiratory failure. And, and often we'll have to then look into where these things fit. So a uh, lot of feasibility studies have been done and we've seen that there is promise in multiple different areas. But what we need now is more robust, targeted um, um, uh, testing of this intervention. So you mentioned that uh, ECOR has been written about and described for over 40 years now. In what groups has it been studied thus far and what does that evidence base show us? Yeah, so we obviously, you know, the, the, it all started with when people saw it's a severe battle trauma and iatrogenic lung injury in those days when we had high total volumes and our ventilation practices were quite different. And it didn't take long for clever people to work out that we are potentially causing harm with ventilation. And then add to that the physiological understanding that it's you don't have to ventilate people to remove carbon dioxide. And uh, in very elegant experiments in those times, the, the, the Gatinoni and Colbo and colleagues demonstrated that you can take a spontaneously breathing animal, remove a whole lot of carbon dioxide, and when you get close to 100% removal, uh, you can pretty much render them apneic. So this concept of uh, uh, dissociating or decoupling ventilation or oxygenation from decarboxylation has existed for a while. And the main reason uh, at that point in time to develop this technique was to protect the lungs and avoid iatrogenic lung damage. So naturally, the, the intention was always to explore this treatment in um, ARDS. And unfortunately, in those days, the, the technology and anticoagulation practices and, and the way we applied it uh, wasn't as good 
as we do now. Uh, and as with any technology, things have changed over time. So naturally they paid a huge price with bleeding complications. Our understanding of ventilation was also not as good as it is now. Interventions like proning, et cetera, was not widespread. So all of that put together, the early results when they tested in ARDS population was not great. And then subsequently, um, people realized that, okay, maybe there was a huge investment in technology and many companies refined the technology further. And now in the last 10 years or so, uh, many small studies have come out looking at the potential use in ARDS. Um, and also over time, we know not just, it's not just about acute respiratory failure. And then there is this group of chronic respiratory failure, especially the COPD population, which are an interesting uh, group of patients by themselves. And we know in those patients, NIV is definitely beneficial. And we know they don't do well if they get intubated. And so there's a huge incentive um, and a strong pathophysiologic rationale to try ECOR in that population because you take away their, uh, by removing CO2, you reduce their work of breathing. And also they're not then panting and creating dynamic hyperinflation in their lungs. So all of that put together, there's a good chance that we may prevent intubation. Likewise, you may also be able to facilitate extubation. So COPD, a patient population is another population of interest, just like ARDS, uh, where more work needs to be done. And the third, uh, more, more exciting area is, as we know, the COPD and the ARDS population is actually a relatively smaller population compared to a larger population of acute respiratory failure, which is, once again, a huge heterogeneous group uh, of varying severity. And there's also increasing awareness of patients getting self-inflicted lung injuries by vigorous, via vigorous respiratory drive, either driven by hypercapnia or hypoxia. So our understanding of evolution of respiratory failure has improved. I think you start off with the initial insult, then there is a lot of self-inflicted damage that might happen uh, with patients, especially the younger, stronger patients having vigorous uh, drive so we now understanding that it's not just gas exchange, there is a whole concept of respiratory mechanics, whether it's you're on a ventilator or whether you're spontaneously breathing. So that means the opportunity to intervene and modulate the respiratory drive and controlling physiology better may have to start much earlier. So that means ECOR may have a place uh, to play in the larger spectrum of respiratory failure where you identify certain patient populations and um, you know use combination of variety of techniques. For example, is there could be a patient who's prone awake and maybe receiving extracorporeal CO2 removal. And one last interesting concept is also of diaphragm protective ventilation. And I think for long we ignored the uh, diaphragm protection as well, you know, especially on mechanical ventilation. And uh, it's either sedation paralysis or spontaneous breathing. There was nothing in between often. So once again, uh, there are prospects of using ECOR to modulate the respiratory drive uh, to allow safe spontaneous breathing in mechanically ventilated patients. And speaking of, Kieran, your work in this area revolves around the no tube project. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Um, 
you know, look, if you take a step back, you know, how the, the whole polio pan, pandemics, epi, polio epidemics happened that led to our speciality getting organized and we making the transition to positive pressure ventilation eventually. I think from then we kind of stagnated in a way that we sort of normalized mechanical ventilation to a point that it was just the obvious choice. We did have high flow and NIV, uh, which were attempted and, uh, but generally intubation and mechanical ventilation has is, is become bread and butter and normalized to the greatest extent. A lot of it is due to lack of options, I guess, and also because it's convenience. And we, what we found by doing this intubation at a large scale intubation ventilation in all comers is that there are patient populations probably who could potentially be harmed with invasive mechanical ventilation, the elderly, frail, immunosuppressed, et cetera. And the, the, there is a need to revisit mechanical ventilation. I think that it's a, you know, it, it's had to substantive costs in the healthcare system significant number of patients actually don't do all that well. Um, and especially if you're very non-selective mechanically ventilating people. Uh, so, and so there is downstream effects such as quality of life, et cetera, once they survive invasive mechanical ventilation. So whichever way you look at it, there is a burden associated to mechanical ventilation. It's no doubt life-saving, undoubtedly life-saving, but also there's another side of mechanical ventilation where we can prolong life, we can add to the long-term um, uh, decline in quality of life, we can add to the cause uh, and potentially harm certain vulnerable population with mechanical ventilation. So based on all that, we sort of thought the two streams happening, there is refinement in extracorporeal uh, support technology, and there is better understanding of respiratory failure. And if you sort of bring it all together and look at how we best integrate um, airway-based um, respiratory supports and extracorporeal respiratory supports, can we find that, you know, middle ground where we can provide the needed support without putting people into coma, without tubing them, without ventilating them. So an example could be, you know, you know, someone could easily be on a high flow and and, uh, and then they could also be receiving some extracorporeal CO2 removal. So that's just an example. Once again, these sort of strategies need to be tested in clinical trials. But if you look at why people get intubated in many of these uh, recent trials in respiratory failure, be it high flow trials or NIV trials, very few actually get intubated because they lost control of the airway. You know, we, we all do it. You know, how often we tube someone because they drop their conscious levels and they can't maintain the airway. It's rarely we tube people for airway protection. It's either for worsening hypercapnia and fatigue or it's for worsening hypoxia. And we need to realize in this day and age that intubation is just one way of fixing hypoxia and hypercapnia. It's not the only way. And more importantly, you'll be surprised we have to define respiratory failure. We need research grade definitions for respiratory failure. Like we have the beautiful Berlin definition for ARDS that allows us to do research meaningfully. We don't have such a definition for respiratory failure, which is, which will help us, you know, guide treatments or measure outcomes in a meaningful way. So the whole body of work needs to be done and it's beyond just one person or one group. So we're trying to collaborate with as many people as possible and take this forward. Here and finally, with the knowledge that you have of vCore, projecting forwards five to 10 years, where do you think it will sit in the armamentarium of the intensivist? 
Yeah, look, I think it's definitely got a role. Um, I think we, my gut feeling or my understanding of where we are now is that I think for a while we got lost our way thinking that those 200, 300 mil flows, which we can achieve along with renal replacement therapy uh, was enough to achieve a clinically meaningful difference. Say, for example, if, if you're going to do partial carbon dioxide removal uh, with very low flows, um, that may not be enough. So with existing ability and existing membrane technology, uh, we need slightly higher flows. So if you start looking at the later flows, for example, we may start seeing some meaningful difference. So then it may become the question of, there may be a population in ARDS, which all it needs is a liter flow to remove CO2 and protect the lungs with protective ventilation. Because we know there is a group that doesn't need much oxygenation support. And maybe it may become an intermediate step because from 100% oxygen in 20 of PEEP to seven liter ECMO is a big jump. So you sort of start off from on the edge of ventilation to then no ventilation and full ECMO. So we're making the dramatic transition. So the question then will be in times to come, will ECO be an intermediate step? You know, are there patients where we can just get away with ECO and, uh, or use ECMO as a rescue therapy? And those sort of things will also emerge in times to come. Another interesting thing that will happen, which is probably the more exciting part is uh, there are um, techniques to make CO2 removal more efficient because with CO2 removal, if you go for very low blood flows, there's only so much CO2 removal you can achieve despite maximum fresh gas flows. After a point, flow becomes a limitation, even though CO2 is very diffusible. So there are techniques such as blood regional blood acidification or, or electrodialysis or you know, coating those circuits with carbonic anhydrase enzyme. All of these are very basic physiology-based concepts, but what they do is they'll make they'll try and get as much blood out of the system uh, for a given blood flow. And by doing that, if you could take out a lot more CO2 at lower flows, which is very feasible technically, then actually we may get better bang for the buck. By doing so, the idea is to minimize the risks and maximize the benefits. Kieran, thanks very much for joining us on the podcast and sharing your insights into what is an older but emerging therapy. Thank you, Todd. It was nice talking to you. Cheers. Thanks for joining me on the podcast today. Get access to all our great podcast interviews, as well as hundreds of modules, journal reviews, quizzes, and articles by downloading our free app. Search for My Osler wherever you get your apps or visit our website at oslacommunity.com.